Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Minorities in Publishing podcast. For new and returning listeners, you may know you can find the podcast on Tumblr at minoritiesinpublishing.tumblr.com or on Twitter at minoritiesinpub or wherever you listen to podcasts, including Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. So welcome to the latest episode and happy summer, y'all. Hope you're in cool air, hydrating, all that good stuff. I'm really happy to talk to Kate Gavino, who I haven't seen in a while because she's overseas now. But Kate Gavino is the author illustrator of last night's reading, Sampaku, and the upcoming A Career in Books from Plume, an imprint at Penguin Random House. So congrats on the latest, Kate. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. (laughs) I'm so happy to talk to you because you've just been such a great steward in the literary community. And like I had mentioned, you did last night's reading, which was a Tumblr, right? Yeah, it started out as a Tumblr, yeah. And that kind of really blew up, especially in the literary scene and for those on Instagram and all that stuff. Kate would do these great illustrations and these quotes from readings. Case in point, last night's reading. I'm really curious how that came about because, I mean, you worked in publishing. You've been pretty bookish in your career, it sounds like. So how did that kind of come about for you in terms of branching that into just something you wanted to do and share with people in regards to reading series. Yeah, so I started the account in 2013 when I was an editorial assistant. And I remember at that time, like, I, I just really wanted a creative outlet of some sort. And as an assistant, I didn't have a ton of money. So I was always going to these free book events at bookstores or book festivals, and things like that. And while I was there, I was always taking notes, sketching the authors that I was seeing. And at the time, Tumblr was getting really popular. So I decided to start posting some of those drawings and quotes on Tumblr. And that's kind of how it all took off, just because I was already always going to these free book events. And I was looking for a way to prove my drawing skills and kind of tie my love of drawing with like my love of literature and books. So it was just a perfect way to like distill all of my interests in this one project. Yeah, And then in 2015, it was turned into a book. The account still <laughs> continues today, even though because of the pandemic, I'm not going to as many book readings, but it's still a project that I enjoy doing. So you're saying a creative outlet. So were you always writing and illustrating? Back in like 2013, I was doing like some freelance writing, but like I I studied writing and literature in college, but not illustration or drawing. So drawing was always something I was very passionate about, but it was also something I was very insecure about. So I was looking for a way to like do more drawing and illustration in a way that there was nothing to lose in a way. So basically just doing my own thing and starting this project. And yeah, so that's kind of how I consider last night's reading the way that I kind of became an illustrator because if you if you look back on the website, like you can definitely see like my illustration trajectory from starting out to now. So I'm really grateful that it was a way that I could really experiment with drawing and practice my skills in a way where I didn't feel like I was being like, I didn't get any rejections because it was all my own project that I was drawing for. It's interesting because, I mean, I haven't gone to a reading since, I mean, I went to one reading mm-hmm. since the <laughs> pandemic. And I used to go to them all the time too. And now I'm like, yeah, not now. It's <laughs> yeah. not because I'm anti-readings or anything. It's just different energy now. It just kind of saps you out. But yeah. I always remember like those big shares of those quotes because it was just kind of so compelling. And I remember being like, one day I I hope 
That was one of mine. <laughs> yeah, definitely like that. Yeah, I was living in New York at the time, and there's like definitely the feeling of being in your favorite bookstore and seeing an author that you really like, or maybe seeing an author you've never heard of, but you're discovering their work for the first time. So yeah, it's definitely like a, a lot of those things coming together to create a really fun event. And yeah, I was working in publishing in it at the time. So when you're on that side of um, the book production line, like you can get cynical. So I think like going to these events really reaffirmed why I enjoyed reading, why I liked writing and creating art and why I love supporting bookstores. So yeah, it was a great way to kind of like keep myself optimistic about <laughs> about the whole book world. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't mind if I touch on that because yeah. what was the lack of optimism coming <laughs> from, uh, like, especially working as an assistant? I mean, I haven't worked as an assistant since the early aughts, mm-hmm. but like we kind of said before I hit record, you know, it's important to remember what that was like when you did come up rather than just kind of being thrust into a high position. And there's a whole different energy. Yeah. And that assistant life is not an easy life. <laughs> Definitely. This does tie into my book, A Career in Books, pretty closely. But yeah, so I was working as an assistant. I started like around 2011 for a lot of different publishing houses of all sizes. I got to work with like all different kinds of genres, all different kinds of like types of editors. I was strictly on the editorial side. And I think when you graduate, especially at that time, like you graduate with a very kind of narrow view of what you think the publishing world is going to be like. I had done some internships during college, so I was exposed to it a little bit. And so you kind of romanticize ideas that aren't really worth romanticizing. I say that now as a 37 year old, but like you expect that you're going to have a low salary and that you're going to be doing a lot of grunt work and that it's going to be hard to get promoted and get a raise. And I guess a lot of that is just kind of like what's expected with entry-level jobs, but the the level that you're willing to accept, your expectations get very low. And I think that's improved in the past few years because as I talk to like a lot of other assistants who are working today, things are improving, but not at, it's never like at a fast enough pace <laughs> to encourage a wider variety of people to enter the publishing world. But I've heard some promising things that things are kind of changing compared to when I was an assistant. But yeah, at the time, the low salary, the very menial work that you're doing, like that's kind of just like what you expect to do as an editorial assistant. And then you kind of see how when you're working so closely, like you see kind of how people treat authors, people treat the work themselves or people submitting their work definitely like takes away the romantic view you have of how a book is created. And in time, you get cynical as well. So I think I touched on that a lot in the book where when I was an assistant, yeah, there wasn't a lot of like realistic views of what the book publishing world was like. So it was basically just a crash course as you're doing that those first couple of years. And did you feel like you saw a future in publishing? If we take out as hard as it is to extract these things, any issues in terms of being a person of color, just being someone who's efficient, just in terms of, like you said, what you thought it would be versus what it is and whether various types of behavior are necessary or whatnot. Like the act of it, like the act of editing or knowing that you were producing books, was that something that you felt like a deep connection to in that realm? Or really, do you think it also was helpful to be like, 
you know what? I really want to be on the creative end. I kind of just want to absorb and enjoy the art in a way that isn't a requirement of my day-to-day job. When I first started out, my goal was to become a book editor, even though like I wasn't 100% privy to like what exactly that job entailed. But that was my goal to become a book editor. But I guess like, I, was in, I worked in the publishing industry for about four years. And I think in that time, by the time that those four years are over, I was definitely disillusioned. And now I no longer work in the publishing world. But it did have to do with like, what a lot of things you were saying, where like I wasn't working with a lot of other people of color. So I couldn't really see myself in those higher up editorial roles. And with Twitter and Instagram getting more and more prevalent, like I was able to see some of those people online, but like in my actual day to day job, I wasn't seeing it that much. So that was, I think over time, that definitely kind of like wore me down in terms of wanting to continue in the publishing world. And also just like the fact of living in New York City, even if I was promoted to an editor position, would I still be able to afford to live in the city? Because like I was seeing what these editors were making. And a lot of the times it wasn't that much more. (laughs) So there was that to, to consider as well. And even on the assistant level, like the salary was so low that like it would take, it would just make a lot of people walk away from the position in general as well. So that was just like very disheartening. But like I said, like now I talk to a lot of people in the publishing world today. I know that things are starting to change and they're far from perfect, but it makes me happy to hear that things are changing over time. But yeah, at that time, those four years definitely left me in the end deciding to not continue the editorial path. But like I have lots of friends who work in publishing and I'm very interested in the book publishing process and how it's changing over the years. And as a author and an illustrator, I get to see it from this side of things. So that's interesting as well. So I think like I've kept like my connection within the publishing world, but it's more of definitely as an observer now. And so taking all that experience and being an observer and having distance, especially, Mm -hmm. which is really key for us as artists, I think, when you create something and you want to comment on it, you create a career in books. And it has three protagonists, besties, Sylvia Sheeran and Nina, Asian Pacific Islander Americans. And they're in New York City, living there best life post-college, <laughs> get in publishing jobs. And they each have a different type of publishing job and a different method to how they got the publishing job and different experiences that they really seem to commune with very clearly on their jobs. Yeah, it's kind of crazy because like I said, yeah, this book was inspired by a lot of my experiences as an assistant. And like you mentioned, the three protagonists all work in different publishing houses. One is a giant publishing conglomerate. The other is like a really small indie press. And the other one is an academic press. And that's basically like the different places that I've worked for over the years, very fictionalized versions of those places. Because I kind of wanted to cover like the the wide scope of publishing. Because if you work at a big publishing house that's very different from for example academic publishing or uh, indie press and like I but even though there are those differences there's also like so many like strange similarities as well like all these weird co-workers you're going to come across who are like either scamming the company or kind of taking advantage of 
other people in a way. But it's funny because of those three, like my craziest stories always come from the academic publishing world, which no one ever expects because they think they're just quietly publishing textbooks or something. Oh no, my worst <laughs> experience of and my longest job was at a university press. Good yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> you could set an entire book at it. Seriously. <laughs> and that's what prepared me for everything after that. I was like, listen, I've been to the battlefield. Yeah. I'm ready <laughs> for your um, nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and like the professors who are authors, they will go into battle for their work as well. Oh my God, the most <laughs> condescending emails are always from like, oh my God. Yeah. I, I would just call over my cubicle and be like, hey, so-and-so, I, yeah. I can't. Let me forward you this email. <laughs> um, actually, after I left my academic publishing job, months later, I was still getting Facebook messages from pre- professors trying to follow up on their manuscript. It's a very interesting world. I hope someone writes a book to like, delve into that deeper one day. But yeah, like I just wanted to like touch on the different facets of the publishing world by placing each of the characters in these different editorial assistant jobs. And yeah, a lot of it had to do with being able to explore like what it's like to work with very touchy professors who are publishing their dissertations or these art directors who have wild budget and the people that like take advantage of that and also like people with trust funds who decide to like start an independent press one day. There are all these very particular characters that I just kind of wanted to introduce in this world. And also keying in on very specific, not archetypes per se, but types, because it's interesting, again, being someone who's been in the business for a couple decades. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's like, okay, yeah. Like when Sylvia's dealing with that new colleague Mm -hmm. and saying, I've worked with this type of person before. And even your summary of the type of person she is, I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was I don't know if you experienced that particularly at the time and knew that you could pinpoint it at the time as you start creating this book like oh yeah this was that person or this is what I've heard about or this is what I've seen in other avenues if not publishing yeah so I've definitely experienced this type of person multiple times even including outside of publishing and that's kind of why I included it in the book so basically the character you're talking about is she joins the company that Sylvia is working at as basically the marketing side she's just like a very take charge very assertive white woman who joins the company and kind of like steamrolls Sylvia and makes her do like a lot of demeaning tasks that she assumes are just kind of part of being assistant and it wasn't based on anyone in particular but it was based on like a lot of experiences I've had working with those types of people who kind of just immediately assume that you as an assistant like it's your job to kind of serve them and in that sense like meaning not listening to your ideas like assuming that they're always right and I think like like as an assistant at the time you kind of are of the mindset like okay I'm an assistant like I have to do whatever they say I have to kind of yield to them but 
but as I'm writing about this from experience, it's frustrating to think that that's kind of like the default mindset because even though you're 21 or 22 or whatever, you do have experience and like you do have your opinions and you do know things. And I know it usually takes like a couple of years to kind of like assert yourself in that sense. But but yeah, when you're kind of like at the bottom as an assistant, you really second guess yourself when you come across these type of people. And a lot of times you let them walk all over you. So I wanted to put this person in Sylvia's path in the workplace and, and like give her an opportunity to stand up for herself no matter like how little support she'll get in the process because that's also very realistic. It doesn't always work out like in the movies where David defeats Goliath or whatever. Sometimes you'll stand up for yourself and you'll be completely alone. And that's another thing that I kind of wanted to show as well because like you can do the right thing and you'll still feel kind of shitty at the end anyway I think yeah that's another thing I kind of took away from my four years at the end where it's like not always a win-win situation no it's definitely not at all and even if you ever get to that point where you feel okay to speak up because some people don't yeah yeah and like as an assistant it's just so scary because you don't have a, a high title you don't have a high salary so like even if you do lose your job and you have to start over from the beginning again and a lot of the times you might try to depend on someone higher up to stand up for you which is what Nina does throughout the book and she slowly realizes that like yeah you can't always depend on these people that you admire to to help you out or or stand up for you or or be willing to like try new things despite like by like all your hard work and perseverance a lot of the book is just kind of demolishing a lot of these kind of idealistic these kind of optimistic ideas that these girls come into the publishing industry with. So I want to also tag on to that because there are choices you make to be able to enhance the story, but also give them the community they need to be able to do what they need to do. Even though each character, for the most part, is dealing with their own issues. They're all women of color. You prioritize that in this story. Vivi, I like calling her Vivi because some of them call her Vivi, <laughs> uh, who is 92 year old. Vietnamese writer who, as far as they're concerned, was the writer that they wish they'd always known about and mm-hmm. kind of went into obscurity. Not really, but also we know how this industry works. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like, as long as you're still being printed, you're around, but the fact is not a respected person who also dealt with a lot of issues herself coming yeah. up as a Vietnamese woman in a very, very white industry in the 60s 70s and what 80s or 70s 80s and whatnot yeah and then they're all have white bosses (laughs) Uh, white white women bosses yeah white women bosses (laughs) yes kate (laughs) lest we forget (laughs) they're Uh, in new york city you also stayed at the top as they each get their jobs what their salaries are oh yeah that was very important to me like I'm a very nosy person and like I definitely wanted this book to touch upon the money side of things because yeah because you pinpoint those money when we meet their bosses too like what they're wearing what they're holding what's in their homes like how much these things have cost yeah um, in conjunction to what the main characters can afford yeah well that was like always the big thing about living in New York for me is because I was just always wondering how do people afford their lifestyles because as an assistant I knew how much I was making and everything that the three girls in the book make like those are my salaries at the time in 2011 and I knew about how much people were paying in rent if they lived in certain neighborhoods and I would have 
fellow assistant coworkers who are like living on the Upper East Side. So like it never computed to me like how they were able to, to afford that on an assistant salary. But of course, that was just coming from generational wealth. Now, I know that now, but like I was just always curious about how people were getting by on their various assistant salaries because in New York, everything I looked at had a price tag. So I was always doing like math in my head. Okay, I'm going to pay 800 in rent this month. So that means I'm, and I have like 200 in student loans. So like I was just always this math in my head and it didn't seem like other people always had to do that. Okay, we're going to go to Chopped for lunch. That means a $12 salad. So does that mean like I can't have lunch for the rest of the week? But I felt like other people weren't doing that math as well. So that's why like it was so important to me to include how much everything cost in this book or how much people were making. And like Nina, for example, her boyfriend pays for a lot of stuff. And like, that's why she's able to like be able to kind of do all this grunt work and start at such a low salary. And and yeah, like when you're just starting out, like you don't realize that all these people have these extra boosters, extra sources of help. You assume that maybe they're at your same level. So you should just accept it as well when like so many other people are like getting help from other places. And then it'll just like all the little things adding up. And that's why like when they're meeting their new bosses, that's why like I always in the book point out like they're wearing a $2,000 Hermes scarf, like well, which is basically what they're making in like three months or so. It's just an interesting thing to me that I thought was worth pointing out because when you're starting out as assistant and you do not have extra sources of help. You're just seeing price tags everywhere. So that I just wanted to reflect that in the book. I remember when I started out, I was engaged mm-hmm. at the time and my partner made a, several thousand more than me, not an extravagant amount, but more. And splitting rent is a big deal. <laughs> you know I mean? I'm making 27 in my first full-time job with benefits. Yeah. And he made actually probably more than five that like, yeah, I think he made the thirties or something like that. He worked in civil service. Mm. He had just started. Yeah. And that felt astronomical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like both our salaries combined. Boom. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's so wild. Cause like that I have friends who work in tech and when they talk about their raises, it's like, I couldn't have never imagined those numbers as an editorial assistant. So yeah, when you work in publishing, you're just used to such different standards. So I understand why so many people leave the industry. Especially if you're not from New York. So did you come to New York for publishing specifically or for school or... Yeah, I moved to New York from Houston, Texas to go to Pratt in Brooklyn. And yeah, it was just like a lot of people. I, I had lots of like idealized views of the city, which is reflected in the characters in the book. Too. But yeah, like so many people who come to New York from outside, it does give them that sense of determination, but also like, okay, I have to climb the ladder from the bottom, which means I have to accept a lot of shitty behavior and terrible pay because that's just part of the process. And I think that mindset is slowly changing over time, or at least I hope so, where people don't feel like they have to accept being treated exactly like dirt to have to get up get up there. Yeah. It's a lot we don't talk about openly. <laughs> yeah. And we starting we are starting to, but people still frown upon it and it's usually generational more so than anything. But it also is shame. I really feel like you kinda of touched on that. Yeah. It's like it must be me. I must not be And for me, I was able to afford things because, A, I didn't have student debt. 
Mm-hmm. I had a free ride. That's why I went to CUNY, as I've said many times to people, because I want to be transparent. I'm mm-hmm. born and raised New York. So even if I didn't have a partner, I probably still would have lived with my mom mm-hmm. at the time and helped her pay rent and got in a bigger apartment with her, in which case I still would have been splitting rent. But either way, I was splitting rent with somebody and I didn't have debt. That's huge. Oh, yeah. And uh, I'm from the city that I am. So I'm like, oh, I know where to go that I'm not paying as extravagant rent, even though New York City rent is ridiculous. But I talked to friends who live in Harlem. You know, I was paying, I mean, for a two bedroom apartment, I'm paying a little bit more than what they're paying for a room that they share. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Like, that's wild to me. I was like, I don't understand this. Or their rent raise is way higher than my rent raises. And I'm just like, I don't understand this. And I've lived here all my life. And I'm not saying New York is cheap again. I'm saying, I think there's just a dynamic when you're from here and then when you're not of what you think your life needs to look like. Oh, yeah, definitely. And yeah, there are so many different situations. Like you said, maybe you're living with parents or maybe you have like a rich boyfriend like Nina. And doesn't always compute when you if you're just coming here like fresh off the plane from Texas or whatever. And of course, you have like all those TV shows like Sex in the City or Gossip Girl, which plants this idea that when you move to New York, you get a giant apartment and you live by yourself. Um, oh, don't even get me started on those shows. I hate those shows. <laughs> I hate the shows. I feel like Sex in the City was slightly realistic because Carrie had a very small apartment and um, she would testify that she was not rich and that she spent way too much money oh, yeah. and that she lived beyond her means sometimes. <laughs> but she still was able to do it because her friends made good money. But at least I felt like that was a little bit like, okay, we're lawyer, high profile. PR person, woman who got yeah. really good settlement and divorce, and carries <laughs> like the brokish of the book. Yeah, but, like, I can like appreciate those shows as pure fantasy, and like I don't mind if like they hand wave everything away on friends. Like they never explain why they have such a giant apartment. I'm totally fine with those shows, but I do want to see a realistic version where okay, this is how much they're paying in rent. This is how much they get from their rich aunt every month. <laughs> I don't have a problem with watching rich people on TV because it's a escape and a fantasy. But I also am just interested in the numbers as a very nosy, curious person. I live in Paris now and that's kind of how I feel here as well. There's shows like Emily in Paris <laughs> that paint a very idealistic view of the city and I'm fine with that but I also just want to see the opposite of that as well where people are doing those calculations I used to do where it's like calculating if I buy a salad for lunch that means I have to eat a bag of chips for dinner. <laughs> like doing that kind of math in their head. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think I get irritable because also we know who the primary cast is, right? Not <laughs> us. Yeah. <laughs> So it's like, okay, I'm kind of living by these white standards yet again. And I'm always like, everyone's in Manhattan where I'm out of boroughs. (laughs) I was always raised in the outer boroughs. So I'm like, of course I've been to Manhattan. Everyone's been to Manhattan. But I could never live in Manhattan. To me, that's just a whole other world of like, you live here? Yeah. You live on the island of Manhattan. That is so odd. (laughs) Why would you do that? I, I think to me, like the idea of living in Manhattan doesn't even seem appealing to me. It's still my dream to have like a giant brownstone in Fort Greene. Like, that's the that's the height of my fantasy. <laughs> I live in house in Queens. I'm like, why do you live in Manhattan? Like, I wouldn't mind having a place in Manhattan as a side place. You know what I mean? Like, okay, well, if yeah. I'm ever going to be really messed up or out late, 
it would be helpful to have a place in Manhattan rather than having to get over a bridge. Well, I'm very, um, like, nosy about real estate in general. Like, I even mm-hmm. know that Mike Lee has an apartment on the Upper East Side, so not even, so even like him, like, he doesn't always live in Brooklyn, too, so. Did you ever see this documentary he did? Of, it was, like, at the beginning of COVID and stuff like that, and someone commented to him and said, you left Brooklyn, and he's like, everyone knew where I lived. <laughs> yeah. You were coming to my house at all hours of the day. I had to go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes sense because, yeah, I, I went to Pratt, which is like in that neighborhood. And on your first day at Pratt, they're like, oh, that's where Spike Lee was. <laughs> See, that's, so they're messing it up for him. They'll be like, oh, Spike Lee, this is why everyone's going to his house. He's <laughs> like, I got to move. I'm sorry. He's like, everyone's literally ringing my doorbell at 3 a.m. And I was like, that's ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. But I'm with you, Kate, because I remember this years ago, pre-pandemic, God rest her soul, Maya Angelou had this gorgeous brownstone that was on sale in Harlem. Oh, wow. Or the cusp of Harlem. And it was for like $3 million, which is still ridiculous. But it was fully renovated, had an elevator, three floors. An elevator that opened into the building, like into the apartment. That's my dream. Yes, (laughs) and a brownstone. (laughs) And that was, so you know that's quote unquote cheap, right? Fully renovated Maya Angelou's brownstone with working elevator. Yeah, you just have to be Maya Angelou to be to have that kind of a permit. I was just like, dang it, I really wish I could have scrounged up a money for a deposit. And then I would pay for it <laughs> until I was 85, if that. <laughs> but as that was the one time I was like, I would like to move in Manhattan if I could be in Maya Angelou's. Oh, yeah. I think also like after she died Toni Morrison's apartment also went went for sale and yeah I was just scrolling through the photos and just fantasizing I don't even live in New York but I still like will occasionally look through Zillow and like read those horrible New York Times articles Mm -hmm. about people looking for apartments but yeah I feel like once you live in New York you're just like constantly just scrutinizing other people's apartments or Mm -hmm. being very nosy about where they live (laughs) yeah just like how did you get this because I feel like what I should have done is gotten three close friends and we should all went all in oh yeah definitely and like have like a little commune together yeah i'm like listen they're three floor we can make this work <laughs> we can make this work y'all there is an elevator as when i lived in new york i actually used to volunteer a lot with meals on wheels mm. and like i loved helping out the elderly but one of my other motives for doing it is that you could also go into these amazing upper east side apartments and just like Mm. be able to see like what it's like inside and yeah that was just like one of the things I loved about New York is that like you could you would be just be walking past all these amazing buildings but that that gave me an opportunity to actually like go inside and meet some of these people But yeah, that's kind of just like an aspect of living in the city. Yeah, yeah, you do kind of run a ongoing balance sheet in your head, I think. <laughs> yeah. I know, I look at my account all the time. I'm like, well, how much have I been spending? <laughs> um, and what have I been spending? Why am I, I work remotely. Why am I spending this? Money? And yeah. that's a danger too. So we're not even getting into that. <laughs> I <Yeah>. digress. <laughs> just like not buying iced coffee every morning. I feel like I've saved thousands <laughs> like 
<laughs> it's these like little stupid purchases that add up. It is. It is. I, I'm not a coffee person, so I never had that <laughs> issue. But that doesn't mean I wasn't buying random stuff. <laughs> it was just, just one coffee. <laughs> yeah. It's like one trip to Dwayne or Eden. You're like out hundreds. Right, right. And then you're hoping that it accumulates to that $5 coupon. (laughs) That's why I prefer CVS because I'm like, you get more coupons more frequently. But Dwayne Rita was like, did I get the $5 yet? Now you have to spend a hundred. I'm like, I don't, I don't have to do this at CVS. I can buy a box of tampons and I will get an immediate $2 coupon. (laughs) I don't need you. I I feel like this episode will just be like everyone's tiny tricks for for surviving in New York. That's it. Go to CVS, (laughs) y'all. Go to CVS and Target. You need a budget. (laughs) Those are the places to budget. Let me tell you, a bag of Skinny Pop is dinner. (laughs) Someone on Twitter maybe like a couple months ago was like posting all of the different pros and cons of shopping at Key Food versus C-Town versus Associated versus like all these like small New York groceries. I think not like small, but like just like things you would these chains you would normally only see in New York and like it made me just so nostalgic because when I lived in Greenpoint I loved my key food so much and I'm like I miss that here <laughs> right you tackle a lot of these elements within a career in books too over one character they just really are not happy they're not being treated horribly but they're not happy. And then one person is because of a coworker that makes them unhappy. And then yeah. it's another person deciding like, am I on the right trajectory? Is this, I feel like I've always known what I wanted, but do I really? And yeah. um, having, again, that external mentor kind of help them think about these things more. So when it came to having these kind of three individuals and their experiences in publishing, do you know what you kind of wanted to also tackle in that, that maybe you felt, but also that you've been seeing? So the three characters, Nina, Sharon, and Sylvia, they're basically like, I consider them like three versions of me while I was an assistant because Nina is very determined she like definitely knows she wants to be an editor she's kind of like willing to do anything to accomplish that and I feel like that was me entering the publishing world I was fully willing to drink the Kool-Aid I just wanted to be an editor and live like a whole life where my life was dedicated to books but even for her like within that first year she becomes disillusioned about how things work and then there's Sylvia who She likes the publishing side of things, but ultimately, like, she wants to be a writer. And I knew a lot of people who worked in publishing, like, that was their ultimate goal was to be a writer. But, like, they didn't mind working in the book industry and kind of seeing how the sausage was made in a way. And also, she kind of sees that it's not, like, the prettiest process to see up close. And then there's Shirin, who she loves books, she loves reading. And I know a lot of people go into publishing because they're bookworms, they're book nerds, and they figure it's relevant enough to be an interest day job but there's something about working in an office that kind of just kills her soul a little bit and I think in that sense that's who I basically related to the most in terms of like my relationship to working in an office is like I know like I'm very lucky and privileged to be paid a salary to just stare at a computer all day but there's just something about it that I, I just hate so much throughout this internal debate that she's having in her head she's like constantly chastising herself because she comes from like a family of immigrants where 
she knows she should be feel so lucky to, to have like this cushy office job where like she's just basically like, stapling things all day and like and like staring at a computer but then feels so much guilt for hating this job so she's like always at odds with herself and that's just like a debate that I really relate to in my head because because I know because of how things are I'm always gonna have like a day job where it's basically an office job and I should feel lucky for that especially like as I have kids <laughs> like I know it's a good way to support them but like part of me will always be like oh this is so boring and I'd rather be doing anything else right now so I always those three situations that these three characters are in I've been in all of those situations and I thought it was an interesting way to explore each of those paths even if like they're slightly ambiguous and there's not always a neat and tidy ending all of those paths within their first year but they're just like three different experiences that I think like are pretty common when you're starting out in your first job after college so yeah I just wanted to explore that that makes sense because I can relate to everybody in this book Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it, it made me kind of think about like, dang, did I ever feel like that? Because <laughs> I'm still here in this yeah. publishing journey. And it's very interesting. But it's also, again, this is a career in books is just a very relatable book. And I think it's really helpful to have a book that isn't kind of skewing into another way of talking about something. It's just really realistically detailing. This is not for everybody. And yeah. that's okay. And also, maybe it is for you and you just are starting in the wrong place. Because I've had, I know people who said, who came back after having mm-hmm. a really horrible, toxic experience and then went to kind of book selling and then came yeah. back to editorial or something in the hopes that this would be different or that they had the tools to deal with it differently or, or whatnot. But they're like, no, I do love it. And they're like, as people like to claim we're in the great resignation or whatever, people mm-hmm. are just like, I'm out. Yeah. Screw all of this. <laughs> this is horrible. And I always wonder about whether or not, okay, well, it's not one thing, it's many things, but do you love it? So that kind of stirs back to my question that I posed to you earlier. It's like, did you actually even like it? You know what I mean? And I think that's the question everyone mm-hmm. in this book is dealing with. It's like, do you like it? Yeah. Do you need to know that right now? And but if you're unhappy, like, let's tackle it. That's such like a tricky question too. Like, do you like it? Because I feel like now as an adult and especially as a mother, you're always like, it doesn't matter if you like it, you just have to do it. But that's just like not always the healthiest response to. And that's why I did want these three characters to have these journeys that were not linear at all. And some of them do stay in publishing, some of them don't, but they stay somewhat like tangentially in the book world. Because like what you want to do when you're 21, like isn't what you're going to want to do forever. And sometimes people do stick around and that's, that's amazing. But, but as I was writing, like you said, I wrote this book from a distance as someone who has left the publishing world but I also wanted to like treat their experiences with like a lot of discernment and carefulness because like like so many people will dismiss them as like 22 year olds who just wanted to jump into this industry not really knowing what what to expect but that's that's kind of just like how you do it a lot of the time and that means making like a lot of bold moves where you're not always right or assuming the best of people when that's not always the case so with Sharin like she finds she doesn't like her job at all and there's a lot of like internal guilt about that but she ultimately decides to leave the publishing industry and she feels like a lot of guilt because like she feels like she's just leaving the job because she doesn't like sitting in a cubicle all day or like answering annoying emails and like I said like when you come from an immigrant family where making a living and making enough money to survive and help out your family is like 
the number one priority. Giving up a a pretty cushy job just seems like a little self-indulgent and not necessary. But in the book, like she starts therapy and she decides like that is the best choice in the end. And even if that means she'll have to do like a a bunch of different jobs cobbled together to, to make rent every month, maybe that's not like the best solution long term, but that's kind of what what will make her happy now and that's the kind of decision that I think is really hard to make especially like as a woman of color as like a someone coming from a family of immigrants that kind of thing where you're putting yourself first that doesn't always come naturally so I just wanted to like show a character who was able to do that even though it wasn't the easiest decision and it's going to be really hard but to me like if I did that at 21 that would be pretty revolutionary as small as it is like I just wanted to, to portray that in a book. And also, I don't want to forget the mental health stuff. That's very important to talk about that I feel also isn't touched upon because we want to also focus on royal we focus on this kind of issue of it is society and these things are projected and we're all experiencing these things. But that also mental health absolutely always comes into play into how we operate as people and also how we we feel like we need to act a certain way in workspaces and can amplify what you said earlier which is is it me 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 Um, so I really appreciate it in a career in books that you talk about that through these characters and again that they just have this very clear support system because I think in books especially when we're talking about friendships and communities we need that bounce back of someone not being so isolated and having like you can still go through a lot of stuff and not be isolated and sometimes I think for the story maybe it requires it Mm -hmm. but I was appreciative that that wasn't a requirement here and that internal friction wasn't at play here. (laughs) <laughs> it was yeah. really like it was really like all the external stuff and then what happened where do you go to feel safe and protected yeah like the friendship was definitely of like a huge part of like why I wanted to tell this story and again like it was inspired by my own friendships and just how much they've nourished and boosted me along the way and including like the dysfunctional parts where maybe you are too dependent on your friends sometimes and maybe you do need to step back and kind of see things from outside of the group a little bit but that support system is just so crucial to the three girls in the book and then by including including Veronica who's like their 92 year old neighbor it also kind of like widens the scope of their perspective a little bit where like they're able to kind of see beyond like this very cozy group of like 22 year olds living together they're able to kind of see the outside world a little bit but yeah it is like very comforting to have that support system where they are all Asian American but they have those different perspectives from within that group because like Nina is Japanese and the other two are Filipino so like there's also that dynamic of East Asian versus Southeast Asian perspectives and that's something I also wanted to explore and then like their different financial situations within that so like they have all like these similarities they all went to the same school they're all interested in books but they also have like these deep differences that make things really interesting and worth exploring so I just feel like that friendship was like just so fun and rich to work with within the book and they have like all these different perspectives on how to get ahead in their career what they want so like but yeah it was just like really fun to explore this group of girls that have so many similarities and so many differences as well and how that can be used to support each other and that makes me even bigger fan because I'm just like, oh, great, no internal drama. 
spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, like, they, they won't argue about things, but, like, it's like yeah. when you're a really good friend, you can't argue and it makes you guys stronger. Yeah, it's like, let's not, they don't need anything more. They're dealing with the white ladies. <laughs> They're dealing with exes that they remember. It's a lot, you know, parental expectations. Yeah. Like low pay as we've established <laughs> yeah sometimes you just need someone to like sit on the couch with and, and stroke your hair while you complain I need some duck buns or <laughs> yes have some tea you know good food yes that's definitely a big part of it <laughs> it is so y'all FYI it's like a lot of good food is talked about and that's also nice. they're in New York City they go to the outer boroughs appreciate it <laughs> yeah, like if, you are, if you have an editorial assistant salary, Flushing is the place to be. Like, Thank you, you Kate. Okay, can we talk? <laughs> but, but y'all's don't all come to Flushing now. <laughs> like, let's let's tiptoe around that a little I know, bit. <laughs> but like, you can come there with twenty dollars and just have like an amazing feast. Like it's for it's real. <laughs> oh my god, I had Korean barbecue with a friend. Twenty five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Endless. They're like, more meat? Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's definitely worth that long-ass ride on the 7. Like, just go there and dig out. <laughs> it's so good. For me, it's just a bus ride, oh, so I love it. You're so- <laughs> <laughs> we used yes. to make a day of it, go to Spot Castle, go... Yes, I have never been to Spot Castle, but I've heard various people talk about Spot uh, Castle. So you were speaking <laughs> totally my language, because I'm like, I've passed by Spot Castle, and it's been there for a while, because I've known about it for a bit so I'm just like Kate is speaking my language with <laughs> well, these things um, and the Vernon stops and the Greenpoint stops well, I said a scene in the book that is in Spa Castle because, like, mm-hmm. I, it's like it's not exactly a luxury spa experience, but it's like pretty interesting when you go there to like just see all like these Asian aunties in the in the steam room all together. But yeah, just like adding that specificity of them always going to Flushing or them always going to like these very specific Greenpoint places that used to exist when I lived there. New York to me was like bookstores and restaurants. Like that was the places that made the city. The city for me <laughs> maybe one day i will go again just heard about spot castle so i've never been i believe yeah. it's still there i think it's still there it's definitely a, a fun place but yeah mm-hmm. don't expect like a five-star spa luxury experience when you go there as to kate's point go get you some food oh definitely it is plentiful yes go to the, the main street line and flushing yeah, the Flushing Mall food court. I miss that place so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. Even around there, I remember I had forgotten my wallet and my ex-boyfriend and I were there and he had but so much cash. And we had to go to this place and for like 10 bucks, we were able to get this whole meal. Out oh of yeah, buffet. it's amazing. Well, I am such a fan of a career in books and I'm such a fan of you, Kate. And thank you so much for taking the time. Like I could talk to you way longer, but <laughs> I know you have things to do because you're several hours ahead of me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but a career in books, again, out in early August is a great graphic novel. If you are aspiring for publishing, highly recommend you read it. If you're in the industry, recommend you read it. But also if you just want to read about three friends who really rally around each other as they're coming to terms with a lot of things in their lives, I think 
It's just for a lot of people. And in some aspects, it might speak to some people, industry folk, a bit more. Regardless of where you are at your life, I really think a career in books is good. I'm a fan of Kate, <laughs> as mentioned. So Kate, how can people reach you, find you? I don't know if you're going to be doing a lot of virtual events or stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I think so. That's what you just kind of updated is on Instagram. I'm at Kate Gavino and Twitter as well. But, but yeah, those are usually the best ways to keep updated with what's going on. But yeah, thank you, Jen. I'm so glad to hear that you like the book because I definitely just want women of color who are working in publishing to really connect with the book. So it means a lot to me that you like it. Thank you for creating it. And your website. I will want to testify. You have a very nice updated website. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Kate Gavino. Of all the books. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I go to my editor, I'm not judging y'all authors, but sometimes I go and I'm like, you haven't updated with your latest book. What the heck? Yeah. But Kate's <laughs> website, K-A-T-E-G-A-V-I-N-O.com has all the stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So thanks again, Kate. Thank you as well, Jen. <laughs> and thanks y'all for listening. Once again, this is Minorities in Publishing Podcast, which you can find on Tumblr, on Twitter, and wherever you listen to and or download podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. And once again, A Career in Books will be out from Plume, a division of Penguin Random House. Definitely see where you can get it.